I'm Kyle Homewood, Director of Community Engagement and Special Programs at Arizona Opera. It's my pleasure to welcome you to a new episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the second opera in this year's McDougal Red series, Fellow Travelers, by composer Gregory Spears and librettist Greg Pierce. The opera is based off of a novel with the same name, written by author Thomas Mallon. The story takes place in 1950s Washington, D.C., in a time that has since been referred to as the Lavender Scare. During this time, thousands of government employees were fired from their jobs after being identified as homosexual. The justification for these firings was that it was believed that homosexual people were more susceptible to blackmail and could be coerced into leaking state secrets. Amidst the political intrigue and civil rights injustices, this story follows an emerging relationship between two men, Hawkins Fuller, or Hawk, and Timothy Laughlin. Hawk is a Washington, D.C. insider who is very well connected while working for the State Department. Tim, on the other hand, is a recent college graduate who's looking to start a career in Washington. Hawk's connections are able to help Tim on his way, and the two develop a romance that struggles through the societal confines of the time as well as their own individual insecurities. To get a better idea of what inspired this story, I got on the phone with its author, Thomas Mallon. Like a number of my novels, this one started with a nonfiction idea. I was really trying to write or thinking about writing a piece about uh, Fred Fisher, who was a young lawyer, briefly famous during the Army McCarthy hearings. He was the young lawyer who was the subject of Joseph Welch's famous rhetorical question to McCarthy, have you at long last, sir, no decency? Uh, This young lawyer that McCarthy was sort of smearing. Uh, And I was going to write a piece about how things might have unfolded in his life after that experience. We were coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Army McCarthy hearings, uh, which would have been in the spring of uh, 2004, that anniversary. Um, But for one reason or another, uh, this article wasn't gelling, but I was doing a lot of reading uh, on the period and thinking about the period. And I began to have uh, the story of these two characters uh, come to mind. I was living in Washington uh, and I was uh, working for the federal government. Uh, At that point, I was on the um, NEH's national council and then I was the uh, deputy chairman of the National Endowment uh, for the Humanities. So I was kind of a fad uh, briefly. And so all those things uh, came together. Fellow Travelers is historical fiction, but includes some real-life personalities like Senator Joseph McCarthy or Senator Charles Potter. So I asked Thomas where he drew the line between history and fiction. I don't write what's called alternate history fiction, you know, that kind of genre fiction, historical fiction, Uh, those books in which you change the course of history, you know, the South wins the Civil War, things like that go on. I adhere pretty closely to the actual historical events, the actual timeline. Uh, And yet what I do is I insert in between points on that timeline, I insert people who didn't exist, but who might have been on the periphery, might have been uh, on the scene. I mean, uh, there was no Timothy Laughlin. He was never in that 
uh, Senate caucus room or he was never in uh, at the Evening Star or uh, was never in Senator Charles Potter's office, things like that. But uh, it's plausible, I think, for a reader and then by extension for a viewer and listener of something like the opera to believe that uh, some character like that might have been there. So it's always a blend of the two. So where exactly did the inspiration for our two lead characters come from? It's very hard to say where characters actually come from. The way uh, you weave together certain things from your own life uh, and so forth into these fictional beings. With Timothy, uh, he's the closer of the two to me. I remember one of the first notes I made for this book uh, a kind of little resume sheet for him, and it said Timothy Laughlin, born November 2, 1931. And that would mean he was, to the day, uh, 20 years older than I am. And so I had a sense from the beginning that I was writing the story of what my life might have been like had I been born 20 years earlier than I was. And, uh, and the answer uh, was probably a lot more difficult than it wound up being. Um, this is really the story of um, gay politics and uh, all kinds of things uh, from a generation before mine. Tim was more, uh, I come more out of his world, uh, the world of uh, his family uh, has uh, connections in a way uh, to the kind of world that I grew up in. Um, and yet, I also, uh, having then kind of left that world or uh, gone into another world, uh, you know, I was a scholarship student to Brown, and then I went immediately from Brown to Harvard. Uh, and so I saw some of Fuller's world, too. Uh, that wasn't the world I came out of, certainly, but I, I met people uh, from Fuller's privileged background, from his educational pedigree and so forth. So I... I sort of felt that by the time I was an adult, I was straddling uh, those two worlds. So I had some kind of uh, insight into both of the figures. But um, I wanted to write a book that was about a relationship where there was this huge kind of uh, emotional imbalance between the two characters. Uh, they they could not be more different, I think. But um, I think they're both in their own ways, sympathetic. Uh, I'm sometimes surprised when people see Fuller as a, vic, uh, as a villain. Uh, you know, they, they see a kind of clear dichotomy that Fuller is a villain and Timothy is a victim. I, I don't really see it that way uh, at all. Um, and I don't really think the opera does either. I think that uh, the opera sees Fuller also as a victim. He has a spectacular set of coping skills that Timothy doesn't have. He's extremely handsome. He's accomplished. He's um, attractive to men and women. He's uh, got a natural kind of self-assurance, um, a tremendous uh, sexual appetite and drive. Um, and he does some treacherous things. Goodness knows uh, the opera turns on a real act of treachery that he commits. But even that is committed because of a need to protect himself, because uh, he too is oppressed by the conventions of the time. And so I, I think it's uh, 
a story of two people who are uh, just under tremendous pressure. And uh, it's a very, very sad story. With the book written and well-received, there was then the matter of translating it into an opera. Bringing fellow travelers to the opera stage was first an idea of Sterling Zinsmeyer, a producer, and Kevin Newberry, a director who would go on to design the original production of Fellow Travelers at Cincinnati Opera, the very same production that will be performed at Arizona Opera. The two brought the idea to librettist Greg Pierce and composer Greg Spears, who actually didn't know each other prior to working on this project. This is Greg Spears talking about his introduction into the process. Originally, I was, I was approached by Kevin Newberry, who is a director, wonderful director, who, um, who has created the production. And he had a friend in Santa Fe who was a big, read a lot of literary fiction, and he had read the book Fellow Travelers. His name's Sterling. And um, he brought it to Kevin and said, you know, I think this would be a great opera. And then Kevin had, I think, just recently, in fact, been to a, um, a workshop of my first opera, which I wrote. Um, with a wonderful playwright, Catherine Wallet, it's called Paul's Case, and um, and then he knew Greg Pearson through other channels. So yeah, so then Kevin came to us and said, "Why don't you guys read this and tell me what you think?" And I didn't know Greg Pierce, and so um, we read it independently, and um, I was really fascinated by the book, um, and I really liked that it was a it was a piece about relationships but a kind of relationship that's refracted through history so it's like the the most personal kind of thing and at the same time working out this huge problem in in our country right that that's not just about gays and lesbians it's about um surveillance it's about power it's about um honesty and truth and all these other things and so i liked that kind of extreme like there was like two big themes and they seem to lie at the opposite ends of scale, right? The, the most, the biggest questions that we had to think about as a country at that time and also the most intimate ones. And fellow travelers, I think, too, I think I was really interested in how Greg Pierce asked me, like, you know, we were sort of having a conversation about what um, what the piece would be. And I, and I know he's a wonderful playwright. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'd love it if you just kind of wrote a great play, you know, because it was, of course, an adaption. And here's Tom Mallon talking about his introduction to the piece as an opera. The first uh, connection I had to the opera, or the first approach to me, was made by Greg Pierce, the librettist. Uh, there's always some confusion here because we've got two Gregs. We've got the composer Greg Spears and the librettist Greg Pierce. I knew Greg Pierce uh, in New York. He was a young writer of fiction. He's uh, since... Uh, kind of been lost to the theater. He's become a very uh, successful uh, and well-regarded playwright in New York. Uh, But it goes back uh, at least 10 years uh, when he said, what would you think of the idea of this uh, novel of yours becoming an opera? And it was Greg Pierce who introduced me to Kevin Newberry, who was the director of the first production of the opera in Cincinnati. And uh, Greg Spears later came on board, that sounds funny, I guess, uh, as the composer, since what could be more fundamental than the composer to the opera. But I actually um, talked about it with Greg Pierce and Kevin Newberry before I uh, ever met uh, Greg Spears. And um, 
so uh, I knew that they were very talented, up and coming uh, people uh, in their fields. Uh, they were uh, a whole generation younger than I was at the time of the opera's premiere in 2016. They were all under 40. Uh, and uh, I'm now hurtling through my late 60s. And uh, so I was very impressed with their talents and, uh, you know, knew that uh, they had the skills to do this. But I knew virtually nothing of the world of opera. And I sort of wish them Godspeed on this. And um, and they stuck with this and uh, it went through a long development and um, uh, I began to see the pieces coming together. I would see them uh, uh, workshopping uh, certain uh, pieces of the opera and then uh, fundraising and then getting commitments and so forth. And uh, I knew that I was in very good hands. And uh, I tried to stay out of their hair with it. I had a couple of conversations with Greg Pierce um, about the character of Timothy. And uh, I gave him a few thoughts. Uh, but I think he would agree very little. Uh, I, I didn't want to get involved in what was an art form that um, to which I could bring nothing. And um, so uh, I was uh, really uh, astonished by what they produced. And uh, I, uh, seeing the opera for me, uh, seeing it come together and then seeing it performed uh, as a whole uh, was really uh, an emotional experience for me. Uh, and um, I think it is, uh, in many respects, very faithful to the book while still being its own creation. And uh, it's been really one of the premier artistic pleasures I've had in life, seeing uh, this book uh, be brought to the stage by them. Many of the artists performing Fellow Travelers have been with the opera since the beginning. This is baritone Joseph Latanzi, who was the original Hawkins Fuller and will be playing the role at Arizona Opera. Longtime Arizona Opera fans will remember him as a Marion Roos Pullen Arizona Opera studio artist. The first time I ever came in contact with it, we were doing the workshop of, um, of it at Cincinnati Opera and CCM, the conservatory in Cincinnati. And... Uh, yeah, I just got assigned to it and um, saw it on the cast list after auditions and uh, didn't know much about it. So I read the libretto and um, that is the moment that I was hooked forever. I mean, I think it's so beautiful. The words are incredibly beautiful. And then uh, sort of it's just been a dream since then, like every every progressive step. The music is, I think, unbelievable it just makes sense to me in a way that a lot of things maybe don't i guess i've had almost six years with it now and the director of this production at arizona opera actually sang timothy laughlin in the workshop originally uh with me and so we've both been with the piece for as long as anyone has been doing it um and I was really lucky after the workshop presentation and, and some presentations in New York, Cincinnati Opera decided to pick it up. And we did the world premiere in 2016. Um, I was shocked and delighted that they kept me on. I feel like that doesn't happen so often. But um, 
I would like to think that it, you know, has something to do with how I connected to the piece. I mean, I really, really fell in love with it. And they made a CD recording uh, from the live performances of the world premiere in Cincinnati. Uh, we did a performance at the Prototype Festival in New York City. And um, I was also part of the production at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. The performances at Arizona Opera will be conducted by Daniela Candelari. This is Daniela talking about her first experiences with the opera in a live interview that took place in between rehearsals here in Arizona. So the first introduction came um, last year at the Chicago Lyric Opera. That was the same production that you're going to see tonight and then on stage next week by Kevin Newberry. And of course, in our time, um, things sometimes happen the way that we don't plan them as musicians. Ideally, we should take a score and start reading it and learn that way. But there is a recording of this. So when I, when I got the call that I will be participating in the Chicago premiere of the piece, I went to Spotify to listen to it. That was my first, <laughs> that was my first sort of reaction. And, um, and then once I sort of heard what, what, what that production was like, which was in Cincinnati, the premiere in 2016, um, I started my studies. And I remember this moment specifically because I um, just finished reading the score at the piano. And it's incredibly beautiful and moving. And I had tears streaming down my eyes as I was finishing it. And I went to my um, the, the bedroom in our apartment. My husband was packing for a trip. And I was leaving a couple of days later. And I just came crying. And he said, what, what's wrong? And I said, nothing is wrong. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> So this is really going to be tough, um, sort of growing through this piece, right? With any new opera, audience members often wonder what the musical aesthetic of the piece will be like. In Fellow Travelers, Greg Spears incorporates a truly unique style, including elements of American minimalism, but also early troubadour music, and even some elements of the Baroque style. When I asked Greg to describe his compositional style, he told me he much prefers to hear how others describe it. And lucky for him, the artists involved with this piece have a lot to say. This is Daniela Candelari talking about the music in Fellow Travelers. So the, the music sort of has three, three levels that it works on, or three different elements that are included from the beginning to the end. And there's an element of Baroque music. Uh, of American minimalism, so 1950s, 1960s, that Greg says he was always very influenced by. Um, and then what I, what I find in its simplicity in ways is this effect of Scandinavian music. So all of these three, what's incredible about them, even though they're stylistically so different, right, in Baroque we have these flourishes, we have grand gestures, um, dance started developing in, in Baroque, and um, with American minimalism, we always think about uh, film, film music and, and sounds, soundtracks and screens and, and that sort of emotion. And that with Scandinavian music, I sort of personally think about Iceland and their landscape and nature and sort of being really connected to everything around us. Uh, but what's incredible about all of these three elements coming together is that they put the listener at the exact same place where the listener needs to be in deciding what it is they hear and what it is they feel in that moment. Um, Gregory also talked a lot about this. The, the element of Baroque is, it's always connected to emotions not being able to really step forward. 
So we have we have this extravagant gestures that sound almost like like a dance, and the entire opera is like a dance essentially. Um, but within that, there's always a little bit of a restraint of showing emotions, and I think it's right that place where the restraint happens and where the music hits, where the listener actually gets to experience all the amazing things and all the sort of discover what things mean to to us and to themselves. This is Joseph Latanzi giving a singer's perspective. It's hard to describe. It's a, a neat mix of a lot of different things. There's um, a good bit of minimalism. There's a good bit of uh, very early music. Um, my aria, especially our very own home, uh, relies on some early like 14th century French troubadour themes. It's florid in places. Uh, there's a, quite a bit of range to it all, uh, very low and very high uh, for all the characters, really. But at the same time, it manages to be completely accessible. I mean, it's totally tonal stuff. It's it's innovative. It's not a copy of, of anyone's particular style. It's uh, beautiful. As Arizona Opera audience members will soon find out, Fellow Travelers has a sweepingly beautiful score And it can be hard to identify your favorite moment. But that's exactly what I asked of our artists. This is composer Greg Spears talking about one of his favorite elements of the score. There's a series of chords that happen. um, And in this production, since it's Kevin's production, I know what happens there. It's when the the two main characters kiss for the first time. And it's not the first time you've heard those chords, but that's a, a place where you can listen and listen for those chords. And they'll come back in all different guises and and so that's the wonderful thing about repeating things in opera is oftentimes things are repeated in ways irony is too strong of a word but um so that those same chords for example repeat at the very end right as in the sort of most bitter moment of the piece right so that so you have the same music that's used to um underscore moments that feel very different dramatically and yet have some sort of tragic connection. I think there are a couple of moments. Um, The first moment is, without giving too much away, um, is the first intimate meeting of Hawk and Tim in Tim's apartment. Um, And they start talking about Bermuda. And what's mirrored in that one scene are the chords in the piano that are now in B major as opposed to the first time we hear them in the opening when they're in C major, so slightly elevated um, um, atmosphere and and emotion. So they're about to go into this incredibly intimate and and very, very beautiful scene. And the chords that we heard in the beginning are what starts that. So that's one of my favorite, favorite moments. I should take you to the 
A favorite moment that is also extremely poignant is Hawk's aria in the second act of the opera. In this moment, Hawk is coming to terms with the fact that he and Timothy can't have a relationship in the way that they both want to. Hawk's aria is so beautiful, I think. I mean, it's very simple. The music under it uh, is very simple. Uh, The vocal writing is pretty complicated rhythmically. I took a long time to learn it. Um, it's very low. So what I like about it is that I, it, it doesn't function as an aria like in a Verdi opera or, or something like that where you're kind of just showing off uh, vocal things. I really think of it as an acting piece. It's really introspective. It really um, is a character-driven aria and, and not so much about what the voice can do. And so... That's nice in a way. It's freeing. I feel like I can lose myself in the conflict of the aria, in the words, um, in his struggle. It's a hard moment. It, everything quiets down, and it's just me alone <laughs> as a singer on stage and singing some very, very complicated thoughts. And um, it's a fight in a lot of ways for the character, for me. And uh, I think it is compelling to to watch. I hope that it's compelling to watch. I love to sing it. It sounds like an Irish tune um, and and structurally it is it is made out of very simple elements. Um, it's a, a drone in the strings so it means open strings on in violins um, that is just a ost- uh, ostinato and Hawk imitates a melody that will later come in the clarinet. So it sounds like an Irish folk tune and something that could have been improvised right then and there. But it's incredibly difficult, actually, to memorize that. (laughs) So um, easier said than done, right?
Fellow Travelers brings back to mind a moment in U.S. history that many people don't know about or certainly don't talk about. I asked Thomas Mallon why he thinks that is and what this story and the opera mean in today's world. What the Lavender Scare really uh, represented was the, you know, the enormous, uh, almost universally held homophobia of the times and uh, the idea that um, uh, the State Department had to be rid of uh, homosexuals in its employment because uh, the argument that was always given was that homosexuals were vulnerable to blackmail. And uh, because they were vulnerable to blackmail, aside from the fact that people felt they were also just plain depraved, uh, but particularly because they were vulnerable to blackmail, they could prove a weak link when it came to national security. Um, The logical step, namely that they could be made invulnerable to blackmail if homosexuality were decriminalized and destigmatized, did not occur to a lot of people or was rejected by most people. But um, the uh, Lavender Scare resulted in um, countless people being dismissed from their jobs, uh, having their lives upended, having their lives ruined, having their lives end in suicide. Um, and uh, it's hard to say why it isn't a better known um, episode in American history. Uh, I think that uh, in a way, um, it's uh, it's probably been lost in the um, certainly in the in the history of the civil rights movement. It, it, it's perhaps obscured by the uh, you know better known uh, arc of the civil rights movement. Um, the fact that uh, the gay liberation movement doesn't really uh, pick up steam doesn't really get underway until uh, nearly 20 years later in the late 60s. Uh, all of these things, I think, um, kept it somewhat hidden. But it's uh, vivid and uh, kind of shocking uh, episode and a real uh, blight on uh, the history of civil liberties in the country. Uh, one that the country has gone a long way to redress. So in that sense, um, there's also a, a hopeful element uh, in this opera that, uh, to a large extent, uh, this is uh, a uh, you know a terrible period um, whose consequences have been undone and rectified uh, to some extent. So for all the tragedy of the opera and the, the story itself is very uh, tragic, the long view of the story is a much more hopeful one. Here is Greg Spears talking about the same topic and what the opera means to him. Because people talk about the piece and they talk a lot about like McCarthyism, the Lavender Scare, and that's that's great because I didn't know much about the lavender scare. And I do know being of a, of a certain generation and being gay, like I do know that like growing up in the, in the eighties and nineties, like feels like a different in the South and military town, you know, it feels like a different world. I was just walking through times square and there's like this big, you know, video of two men kissing. And I'm like, okay, now, so this is a different world than, than, uh, than I grew up in, certainly. And, um, but there's a way in which so much was invisible, even back in the 80s and 90s, you know, and um, the visibility with gay culture was really, you know, had a lot to do with AIDS and the AIDS epidemic. 
what was difficult growing up then is that there things were kind of like didn't exist, right? So like you get there was all this kind of you know things you 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 would hear in school and you know and bullying and all this stuff. But at the same time, there was very little visibility, and then things changed very very quickly. And so it's almost uh, the risk is to look back and to have never been taught about the lavender scare, and then to think, oh, we don't have to learn about it because we've come so far. You know what I mean? So there's this way of history kind of hasn't been written yet. For this whole, you know, very 1950s, when the 1950s was all about a sort of surface narrative, and there's all this other stuff going on. And I, so I think it's really important, um, especially especially in a way for for my generation. Greg and I, Greg Pearson and I are the same age, and actually Kevin Newberry is the same age. We're all like, well, we were around 40, but now we're a little bit more than that. And um, and so I feel like we're like right in between. We're having grown up in one world and now we're sort of becoming artists in another world and so there's this sense of like like it's hard for me to imagine the 1950s but it can be hard for someone else to imagine like what was it like in in 1980 in certain places um so i think that that's really important for us to like give a chance for a relationship like hawk and thames which I would have liked to know about in 1990. You know, I would have liked to know that that relationship was, was like existed, um, and it probably would have been actually more helpful to have known then than to to be experiencing it now. But it's also important now to, in some way, um, try to fill in the blanks of that history. So I think that's really important in and of itself. I mean, I, I of course all the things that are the forces at play um, in the McCarthy era. Um, both stay the same and transform, and then we meet them in the present. And so we have to be vigilant, I think. And I think that's part of a way of, obviously, it's, a, um, it's been said many, many times, but you know, history will, will shed a light on what, what's going on right now. And hopefully you can um, see what's the same and, and how, not just celebrate how far you've come, but see, the, see what is the same, unfortunately. I connected this piece quite a bit. I mean, I'm a gay man, and I have never seen an opera about a gay love story before. Um, I think that's a very basic level. Uh, but I think there's a larger human connection to it all. I think anyone who's been in any sort of complicated relationship can uh, can find themselves in one part or another of this story. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's an amazing thing to see yourself reflected in a character. I think, you know, as an actor, we should all be trying to do that with every character that we play. Um, this one is a little bit easier for me um, to identify with. I mean, I hope that I would hope that I as a person make uh, better choices, but sometimes you don't as a person, right? With its impactful story and emotionally compelling music, Fellow Travelers is a different emotional experience every time it's performed, both for audience members as well as the artists that were involved in its creation and performance. This is Thomas Mallon once more, talking about the evolution of the opera over the last few years. Yes, I mean, I've seen... um, uh three productions of it so far, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the Arizona Opera production uh, next week. And uh, I do think uh, you see um, different things. Um, Daniela conducted it in Chicago. Uh, I was pleased to meet her. Some of the cast members remain the same. Some of them change. 
I've seen uh, Joseph Latanzi play Fuller in all of the productions. I've seen uh, two different Timothys, Aaron Blake and then Jonas Hacker. And I think the those pairings, uh, Latanzi and Blake, and then Latanzi and Hacker, they bring out different things in the relationship between the two characters. Uh, the chemistry is different between the two of them. And so you see uh, something different there. Every time I see it, I'm amazed at the feats of compression that um, the composer, the librettist, and the director uh, managed to achieve, how much of the story they're able to get on the stage in a couple of hours. I mean, in a novel, you have almost all the time in the world to do things. Uh, when you adapt a novel to uh, film or television uh, or opera, um, there's this compressive pressure that you're up against, uh, which I think would defeat me, but uh, clearly has not defeated the people who brought uh, fellow travelers to the stage. So you do th see things and you react um, very um, unpredictably in a way to things. I, uh, I can't remember why, but uh, there's a scene in the opera uh, that's also in the novel where the two of them, uh, Hawk and Timothy, are on the roof of the old post office in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's shortly before uh, Timothy is about to go into the army, and there's this uh, scene where they actually drop a milk bottle off the roof. It sounds preposterous <laughs> unless you know the, the context for it. And I um, I remember seeing that scene for the first time on stage and uh, just becoming very emotional. Uh, they they were so real to me and they were so much the characters that I had created that uh, I remember that in a way as a, a kind of overwhelming moment for me uh, as somebody who was just sitting in the audience. Uh, it sort of all came home to me at that moment. In case you're wondering, Arizona opera audiences will see the combination of Joseph Latanzi as Hawkins Fuller and Jonas Hacker as Timothy Laughlin. I hope you'll be joining us for performances of this remarkably beautiful opera. It opens in Phoenix at the Herberger Theater Center November 8th, 9th, and 10th, and then in Tucson at the Temple of Music and Art Saturday, November 16th, and Sunday, November 17th. For tickets and other information, visit azopera.org. The opera will be presented in a production originally by Cincinnati Opera that is designed and directed by Kevin Newberry. The director for these performances is Marcus Shields. I want to thank the artists that contributed to this podcast, author Thomas Mallon, composer Gregory Spears, conductor Daniela Candelari, and singer Joseph Latanzi. Performances of Fellow Travelers are part of the McDougal Arizona Opera Red Series and are made possible in part through generous support from the Flynn Foundation, Michael and Beth Kasser, Robert S. and Shoshana B. Tanser, Dennis and Jane Fennessy, the Fred Delgado Real Estate Group, and an anonymous donor. I'm Kyle Homewood. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast.